Good morning, everyone. Good to see everybody today. Uh, For those of you who might be visiting, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor of the church. And uh, thanks, Adele. Um, And I just want to uh, thank you for being here. We very much appreciate you visiting with us today and uh, hope you'll visit with us uh, again soon. Uh, Before we get into the message today, there's uh, another thanks that I want to give, and that is for all of you who over the past a month uh, have given me uh, cards, notes, gifts, uh, things like that. Uh, October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and uh, quite a few of you uh, gave me uh, different things, a lot of gift cards to restaurants and stuff like that, and uh, appreciate that very much. Some of you even uh, put cash in uh, cards and did not sign your name, uh, which I was both very appreciative of and a little bit annoyed by because I don't know how to thank you, uh, but, uh, but thank you. Uh, not annoyed enough that I wouldn't invite you to do it again next year, um, but, uh, but, but anyway, I wanted to be able to thank you personally, and I can't, so maybe you're in here this morning, and uh, thank you for that. So, so thanks to everybody who did that. Uh, for the rest of you who did not, um, you know, I'm not sure what to say other than... Uh, Christmas is coming up, so you can consider consider redeeming yourself at Christmas time. All right, uh, just joking around. All right, well, today we're continuing on with our Love, Sex, and God series. We have uh, kept our high school class in here today because of the subject matter, and um, so uh, we will not be releasing them. Uh, this is week five of our series. Week one dealt with sex being God's idea and the implications of that. Uh, Week two dealt with the four purposes of sex, uh, which together form the uh, only appropriate context for sex. Uh, Week three dealt with what we need to do when we have sinned sexually. And then last week we focused on how we can avoid sexual sin by uh, looking at the best case study I know of anywhere uh, for avoiding sexual sin, which is the story of Joseph and uh, Potiphar's wife that's found uh, in Genesis. And now today's topic is what about premarital uh, sex? Evidently, there are a whole lot of people uh, that are having sex before getting married. Uh, studies are showing today that 90% of all people have sex uh, before they are Uh, married. Uh, One study uh, showed that among unmarried evangelical Christians, now we have to keep in mind here to appreciate what this study tells us, that we evangelicals are the ones who seem to get credit with taking the Bible the most seriously, uh, trying the, the hardest to live according to the, to the scriptures. You know, to, to be evangelical is to be like serious about your faith. And yet here's what a study showed about unmarried evangelical Christians aged 21 to 45, 69% had had sex at least once in the previous 12 months. What used to be scandalous is now practiced by a large majority of people in our nation. 70% of couples now cohabitate uh, before getting married. And various arguments are put forward as justification for cohabiting and having premarital sex. Here are a few of them. We're going to get married eventually is one justification. We need to make sure that we're compatible is another justification. Some people being honest enough 
to admit that what they really mean is that we need to make sure we're compatible sexually. Basically, we need to, uh, you, you know, it's viewed as like test driving a car for some folks. Got to make sure that we really like the car before we commit uh, to buying the car. Here's another rationalization. We've got to make sure that we're emotionally ready and living together is the best way to do that. And so for these and other reasons, people convince themselves that premarital sex is a good idea, but it really is not a good idea. Uh, Of the evangelical Christians who once pledged abstinence and then have sex before marriage, uh, seven out of 10 have their first sexual encounter with someone who does not end up being their spouse. So so they may have rationalized that I'll go ahead and do this because we're going to get married anyway, but they don't end up getting married anyway. Of those who live together to make sure they're compatible, uh, studies show that those folks end up with higher rates of depression and lower rates of marital happiness. They have higher divorce rates and they are less sexually faithful to one another if they have cohabitated before Uh, A marriage. One study found that women who cohabitate before marriage are 3.3 times more likely to be unfaithful uh, once they have uh, gotten married. Uh, The the National Marriage Project at Rutgers University has looked at all of this and has concluded that the act of cohabitation generates changes in people's attitude toward marriage that make the stability of marriage less likely. Society-wide, therefore, the growth of cohabitation will tend to further uh, weaken marriage as an institution. So I could go on and on with information uh, like this. It's just, it's out there. Uh, One of our members came to me after the first service, and they had been at a a conference uh, uh, earlier this week, and, and the conference was all about what social scientists are saying about cohabiting and the, the family unit and how important uh, that it is. So, so there's all of this stuff that we could go on and on about showing us that even though people might think sex is a good idea, sex before marriage is a good idea, it really is not. And then there's something else that's very important to consider. Not only is sex before marriage just generally a bad idea, but on top of that, God forbids it. God says, don't do it. God forbids it. Of course, this is another argument that people make in defense of premarital sex. Here it is. They claim that the Bible does not forbid premarital sex. Here's what you'll hear uh, folks say. They will say that the Bible does expressly forbid uh, such sins as adultery, but does not specifically address premarital sex. They say this, but they are wrong. The only way that you can make that argument is if you look for the words, do not have premarital sex in that exact order, you will not find those in the Bible. But that is the extent of the credibility of their argument. They they say the Bible doesn't address it, but they are wrong. And so today I want to take the next few minutes to share what the Bible very clearly says about premarital sex. So teenagers that are in the room here today and you are uh, facing temptation toward a first sexual experience, you need to pay attention today. Because here's what 
is very possibly going to happen to you at some point if it hasn't already. A guy or a girl is going to try to press you into doing something that uh, you don't uh, want to do, that, that in some way you're uncomfortable with. And, and one of the things that they're going to say to you is, the Bible doesn't say this is wrong. And you need to know that the Bible actually does say it's wrong. Single adult here today, maybe you've never married or maybe you're uh, divorced and maybe you're facing a lot of sexual temptation and you would really like to believe those voices who say that the Bible doesn't say anything about premarital sex. You need to know that it actually does. A widowed person who does not want to remarry, but you would certainly be open to a cohabiting relationship You need to know that the Bible, that God forbids premarital sex, forbids all sex outside of the committed marriage of a man and a woman. And so for the next few minutes, I just want to lay out, uh, it's a very simple case, but it's a very clear case uh, for what the Bible says about premarital sex, the biblical case against sex outside of marriage. And so here's the first thing, and we've already seen this throughout the series, The Bible very clearly presents marriage as the only acceptable context for sexual expression. Genesis 2, 21 through 25, which we looked at in the first couple of weeks of this series, in those uh, verses we find that God intended sex to be for those who are in a committed covenantal relationship, a committed covenantal uh, marriage. And then as we discussed in week two of the series, We find in the Bible four purposes for sex. And if you missed the second week of the series, you can can request that uh, CD or go online and look at it. It'll cover all this for you. Those four purposes are consummation of marriage. That's the very first purpose of sex, consummation of marriage, procreation, love, and pleasure. And when you consider all of those purposes, it is very clear that the Bible views marriage as the only context where all of these purposes uh, are fulfilled. We've talked enough about these things. I'm not going to spend any more time on those for today. But but the point here is that uh, the Bible is teaching with with this first point that I'm covering uh, a, a positive message. Here is what you are to do when it comes to sex. You are to have sex in the context of marriage. Now, we're going to look at places where the Bible tells us what not to do, what not to do. But Genesis makes it very clear what we are to do. We are to uh, have sex within the context of a committed uh, marriage. So not only does the Bible present marriage as the only context, it also presents marriage, uh, I'm sorry, it presents premarital sex as a grievous sin. Let me say that again since I mangled it so badly. Not only does the Bible present marriage as the only context for sex, it also presents premarital sex as the only, uh, boy, I just can't get through this one. Pray for me presents it as a grievous sin. That's what is so difficult for me to say for some reason. Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 21, which you recently read, uh, if you were following along in the church's daily Bible reading plan, says this. It's a very interesting passage. If a man takes a wife and after lying with her dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name saying, I married this woman, but when I approached, I did not find proof of her virginity 
Then the girl's father and mother shall bring proof that she was a virgin to the town elders at the gate. The girl's father will say to the elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. Now he has slandered her and said, I did not find her to be a virgin, but here is the proof of my daughter's virginity. Then her parents shall display the cloth before the elders of the town, and the elders shall take the man and punish him. They shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the girl's father, because this man has given an Israelite virgin a bad name. She shall continue to be his wife. He must not divorce her as long as he lives. And, and now here's something very important. If, however, the charge is true, and no proof of the girl's virginity can be found, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. Pretty clear. Now, there is a lot of stuff in this passage that goes beyond what we're able to talk about today, and I'm going to ask you to just put aside for now all of the questions of the, the punitive measures that are outlined here, although I will clearly say uh, nobody's calling for stoning of people who have premarital sex today, okay? So don't leave here saying, uh, Brian taught today that when people have premarital sex, they should be stoned to death. Brian did not, did not say that. And I thought that would be funny, but that's not funny at all to you. So um, anyway... But if you can just put aside the punitive issue related to this passage and focus on this one clear fact that the passage uh, makes, and that is that sex before marriage is a grievous sin. Grievous. Now, that's kind of an archaic word, probably. Uh, grievous is, is something that should cause great sorrow. A grievous is also something that is flagrant, something that is outrageous something that is atrocious. So God views premarital sex as an atrocious sin. It's a, it's a big deal to God. It's not, a, it's not a little thing. And so then the rest of this chapter gives a number of scenarios of sexual sins and their punishments. And the underlying assumption of each one of them is that sex outside the covenant of marriage is wrong and it is of great significance. So the Bible presents marriage as the only context for sex, and it reveals premarital sex to be a grievous sin. And then we find more in the New Testament. In the original language of the New Testament, there is a very important word to know when it comes to sexual sin, and it is the word pornea. Pornea. Whenever sexual sin is referenced in the New Testament, it is often the case that it is uh, the word pornea that, that, that appears. And pornea gets translated a number of different ways in our English Bibles. Basically, pornea at the time was a kind of a catch-all word that was used to, to uh, reference a variety of sexual sins. Its basic meaning is kind of a, a general like sexual immorality or fornication. And so any specific sin, uh, sexual sin, might be in view when the word pornea was used. And so because of that, it is often the context that the word is found in that will let us know the specific sin that is being referred to. So if you keep that in mind, there, is a, uh, there are a couple of New Testament verses that make it quite clear to us that premarital sex is sinful. 1 Corinthians 7, 2. Since there is so much immorality, 
Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 1 Corinthians 7, 9, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The word immorality in verse 2 is pornea. Since there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. If you cannot control yourself, Paul says, here's the answer. Get married. For it is better to marry than to burn with sinful passion. Now, here's something that makes this very, very interesting. It's what was going on at the time. This was spoken, this was written in the context of Paul advocating that people remain single. He he was advocating against marriage because of the difficult times that the church was facing when this was written. He was acknowledging that when you take on the responsibility of a spouse and then the responsibility of children, that it is much more difficult for you to live through the difficult times that they were facing than if you remain single and just kind of have yourself uh, to take care of. And so this makes this quite interesting, that even in that context, Paul is saying that sexual sin is such a bad thing, such a such a sinful thing that even though he would like people to remain single because of the present circumstances, he would rather they marry than sin sexually. He'd rather they take on the added responsibility that's going to make life more difficult in spite of their circumstances than he would for them to sin sexually. Paul's making it clear that marriage prevents the sin of pornea. In other words, having sex outside of marriage is pornea, but if you get married, then sex within that marriage is not pornea. So marriage is advocated by Paul as a way to prevent yourself from being guilty of sexual sin, and it makes it very clear that sex outside of marriage is sexual sin. The Bible is very clear. God forbids premarital sex. Marriage is the only context for sex seen in the Bible. Premarital sex is viewed by the Bible as a grievous sin, and marriage is the only thing that prevents the sin of pornea, the only thing that prevents sex from being sinful. So let's not allow ourselves to entertain the voices that claim the Bible does not say what the Bible clearly says. Premarital sex is a bad idea for many reasons. But in addition to all of those, it is forbidden by God. And then here's a question that I think we have to address today. A question that often gets asked. So what constitutes sex? Someone says, okay, I'm willing to concede that the Bible says that sex before marriage is sin, but what constitutes sex? And basically, I do need to use a grown-up word here. I don't think it'll trouble anybody too much. But if that warning worries you too much, you can head for the exit now. Let's all just kind of look at the ceiling and give people an opportunity to head for the 
head for the exit. Basically, the argument that gets uh, put forward by, by folks is that um, sex equals intercourse. And, and as long as you don't have intercourse, that you haven't had sex and you haven't sinned. I'm going to be very honest with you today. I hope there's nobody in the room that's persuaded by that argument. But there's a lot of people who are persuaded by that argument, at least if actions communicate what people believe. What constitutes sex is not a difficult question. And we really should not pretend that it is, though some people do. You may remember it depends on the meaning of is. Some of you are too young to remember that, but we had a former president who thought what constitutes sex was a very difficult question. But it really isn't. So teens, single adults, anyone who is unmarried, really anyone at all, listen to this uh, uh, test of whether something constitutes sex or not. Uh, Lauren Winner, a Christian writer, uh, provides a very easy test for figuring out what constitutes sex. And she gave this test in the context of a specific sexual practice that for the comfort of the congregation, I will leave unnamed. But it really works for any sexual practice. And I'm paraphrasing her a little bit, but this is the gist of it. You know something is sex if a wife or a husband would consider it sex had their spouse done that thing with another person. I think it's a great definition. I'll say it again. You know something is sex if a wife or husband would consider it sex had their spouse done that thing with another person. So let's not pretend this is difficult. Sex is more than intercourse. All intimate touching, and again, for the sake of everyone's comfort, I will just say, etc., etc., constitutes sex and is forbidden in all contexts outside of a committed covenantal marriage. So, in light of all of this, there are a couple of appeals I want to make, and I want to remind us of a few things. First of all, because sex outside of marriage is sin, because it displeases God, and because God forbids things that he knows are bad for us, then both for our own good and in order to honor God, I appeal to every single one of us who are here today, including the unmarried among us, to commit to sexual purity. Not very many people today are, are making that commitment, but you can and you should, and God wants you to. Secondly, for all of us here today, single and unmarried alike, anyone who faces sexual temptation, which is pretty much everybody, we need to believe something that is very true, and believing this will help us a lot in this fight. It's something that's true, but we often act as though it's not true. Here it is. God is better than sex. God is better than sex. We get into trouble anytime that we desire God's gifts 
more than we desire God himself. That is always idolatry. Our good God has given us the good gift of sex. But when we desire sex more than God, we make an idol, we make a rival God out of sex. We need to be completely convinced that God is better than sex. And when we commit to purity, when we resist temptation, when we say no to our flesh, here's what we are saying to God. I know that you're better. I know, God, that you are better than sex. You are better than everything that tempts me away from you. God, I choose you above everything. Third, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to remain pure. We cannot do it on our own. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. This is a wonderful verse on so many levels. This one verse lets us know that No temptation, there is no temptation that is too great for us to resist. Here's why. God does not allow temptations that are too great to be resisted. He doesn't allow them. So all sin is a choice that we make. It's always a choice. It's never too much. It's always a choice. But it also lets us know that God will always provide a way out of that temptation. The the strength to resist is always available. A way out of the temptation is always available. God is always providing the power for us to resist. Whenever we sin, the power to resist is available to us. We simply have to reach out and take hold of that power. We have to be willing to tap into that power, to rely on that power, to yield to God and to receive his power. We can't resist in our own strength. We have to rely on God to remain pure. And God is always giving what is needed to remain pure. If we'll just take it, receive it, yield to it. We can never say, God did not give me enough strength to resist. God always provides the strength to resist. When we sin, it is because we choose the sin instead of God. And so to remain pure, we have to rely on the Holy Spirit for strength. He will provide it every single time that we yield to him. And finally, and here's a really important point, for people to to receive today. What I have shared today is extremely challenging. It sets a very high bar for behavior. It calls single people to commit to something that 90% of everybody won't do. It is a challenging and demanding thing that God requires of the single person. But for those of you who are already in that 90% or who someday join that 90%, 
You need to know that even though God sets a really high bar, a really high standard, there is grace for those who fail. There is grace for those who do not meet the standard. God never compromises his standard. He always sets it very high. He he sets it high for your own good. But when you fail, when you fall short of the standard, there is grace for you. 1 John 1.9 assures us that when we have sinned, that if we will simply confess our sins to God, that he is faithful and just, that he will cleanse us of our sins, and that he will purify us from all unrighteousness. And then Galatians 6.1 says that when there is someone in our midst as a, as a church body who has been caught in a sin, their brothers and sisters are to restore them gently. So understand how this works. The sinner must recognize their sin. The sinner must repent and fully turn away from their sin. When that happens, then God cleanses them and God purifies them. And it is at that point that the brothers and sisters restore the person gently, keeping in mind our own weakness and how easy it would be for each of us to sin in the very same way. God sets a very high standard for single people when it comes to sex. He empowers them to live up to that standard, but there is grace for them. There is grace for you when you fail. If you are here today and you have failed sexually, maybe even in the last week, you do need to repent. You do need to turn away from your sin and turn back to God. And when you do, there is grace for you. I don't know who first said this, but there is a statement that I heard probably 20 years ago that has never left my mind. And I've always been thankful for this statement. And I hope, if you don't remember anything else I say today, that you'll remember this statement. So maybe write it down. If you have a great memory, maybe it'll just stick with you. Uh, But here's the phrase, or here's the sentence. God's grace is greater than your disgrace. God's grace is greater than your disgrace. The standard is high and will always be high. The standard will never be lowered by God to meet how we actually live. He'll never do that. He always holds the standard high. But there is grace for those who fail. And so if you have failed, there is grace for you. There is also freedom for you, freedom from the bondage to sin, and there is freedom from the condemnation that sin brings on us. My prayer is that those of you who need grace today will turn to God this morning and you will receive the grace that he wants to give you. Why don't we stand?